My favorite area of fasting is called circadian fasting. And the reason it's a fancy term, but literally means not eating overnight. And that sounds so simple and so, you know, basic, but we don't do it. Um, most Westerners, especially Americans, eat up to, uh, you know, 16 hours a day. And so literally they're maybe taking a break for seven to eight hours while they're sleeping because they're eating something right before bed or drinking wine or having their last dessert and then rolling out of bed and eating first thing. And what we find is that the gut needs sleep and rest and repair time. Team, that is Dr. Amy Shah, and you are listening to the Epic Table Podcast. All right, my friends, you are in for a treat on this week's episode of the Epic Table Podcast, guys, because we have Dr. Amy Shah, and she's going to cover one of the most talked about questions, FAQs, topics that we get on this show, fasting. Yes, we've had people before, uh, but we have now Dr. Amy Shah herself, fasting MD, known on Instagram. I'm going to break a few things down. Are you fasting correctly? Some typical things around women and fasting as well. A lot of questions around that. Should you be fasting as an athlete? That's a good one. Or even just someone who's trying to perform. That's the best way to treat your intermittent fasting schedule. All of that and more on today's show. I'm excited because uh, this podcast is growing. So if you guys want to subscribe to a podcast is going to help you improve your human performance through what we do at the table please hit that subscribe button wherever you listen to your podcasts and guys as you know i'm a big believer in fasting we have a communal fasting effort on this show working monday to friday the first monday to friday of every month so if you want to join intermittent fasting as a community like we do at the epic table just head to my website you can download on the resources section the intermittent fasting plan all right there it's free go ahead and do it and guys because of that we get asked and we talk about this actually on the show today how to break your fast and i've talked about this before the best way to do so is having an abundance of high fiber plant vegetable based ingredients so Number one, if you have whole foods in front of you, that's the best way to break your fast. Number two, if you don't want to do that, you can do what I do, which is I use athletic greens and have done so for the past five years. As a customer, it is something that has worked for me. I recommend to a lot of people, notably you guys. Uh, and the best way you guys can do it is because it's in a awesome green powder, it contains so many vegetables, root vegetables and fruits. All you need to do is add it to your morning shake or just like I do with cold water. First thing in terms of breaking your fast. Now, why is that? We discussed that on today's show as well, but just in a short note, when you fast and you have the process of autophagy, you have all these brand new cells ready to take on the beneficial ways of the best nutrients available. In this case, Athletic Greens has just that with 75 minerals plus the prebiotics, the probiotics and the digestive enzymes and more. So if you guys want to, head to athleticgreens.com forward slash epic you can get not only the monthly pouch, which contains all the wonderful things you need every single day, you also get the free vitamin D3 for a year, along with your awesome five travel packs. And uh, if you're notably moving around like I am a little bit at the moment, you can uh, take your travel packs with you wherever you are. So that's head to athleticgreens.com forward slash epic. And that's the best way to get the additional wins with your typical athletic greens pouch as i said i've been doing it for five years customer first all right so if you want to break your fast like i do it's the best way to do it now that's saying any further dr amy shah i'm stoked to have you on the show today and for you to talk all your wisdom around fasting dr amy shah welcome to the epic table podcast thank you so much for having me dan this is such a this is such a treat such a treat, but for me it is actually because we've been following your work, the Epic Table team have for some time and it's it's great to have the Fasting MD as your Instagram, but it's, it's also amazing that you back it up with all this awesome information and tools and resources for people to follow. So uh, we've loved following every word of wisdom that you have supplied and I, I love when people talk to me about fasting in general, I think a lot of us get caught up in, and I've discussed this before in this show, one 
parameter of benefit, which is the weight loss side, but you lead with the benefit of energy. Uh, and I'm really excited to tell, tell that story and, and, and your, your philosophy behind that. Um, before we do, you actually just in the, as we were, before we record, you were discussing where you're from. So you weren't born in the States like me. Where were you born? I was born in India, actually, in Western India, in the um, state of Gujarat, in a small town um, called Baroda. Wow. And so what kind of, uh, what, I always say this when I get to meet an Indian in, uh, or some individual, because your cuisine is so geographically relevant to the location you're in. So what kind of, uh, what kind of food do we have uh, in, that, in that area? Um, so, you know, traditionally, Gujarat was very, very healthy. They had um, rotis and rice and vegetables and dal. And it was a very balanced cuisine. But what happened over the years, um, just <laughs> like, you know, the Western world, um, things started to get more refined. And my parents even remember that their grandparents ate differently than they did. They're, so my parents, when they're eating a lot more, you know, refined carbohydrates at breakfast with sugar in their tea, and then they would have like a snack after lunch. And I told them, I said, you know, think back to your grandparents and how they ate. And was that similar? And they said, no, they didn't have as many. There was no access to white sugar. And, you know, literally white sugar was so expensive, as was white flour. And so they really had it as a treat once in a while. And so the cuisine um, in Western India is extremely, has changed a lot in the last 50 to 60 years. And um, it's still vegetarian, uh, primarily. And there's lots of plants. However, there's also now lots of refined carbohydrates and sugars, which is un unfortunate because they have some of the highest rates of diabetes, even though they look very slim, but diabetes and heart disease ravages the whole country, especially that part of India. Oh, that's, uh, I mean, it's a, it's a pretty typical story when you start to think about how, you know, the industrial revolution and agriculture have changed so much over time, but yeah, it makes sense. And I think it's, um, it, it sucks, but it's also great. You have people like yourself who are from those locations still bringing attention to everyone about, you know, what is true, what is false. And I, it's funny. I, I talk about Chinese food. I know this is slightly off topic, but people's like, do you like Chinese food? And I said, with all, with all respect to my awesome, I've actually, there's a lot of restaurants in New York city that, um, a couple particularly that my friends own, they're really good. I like them. My, my favorite Chinese food is actually from China. You right. know, like it's like the vegetable heavy, they, they don't serve if any rice, believe right. it or not people. Uh, so it's just amazing how over time things have changed, which means for all of us, it's just up to us to be a bit more, you know, a bit more specific and understanding of the choices we're making from the traditions of true foods and where they're from. So uh, great way to start the story of knowing the Indian cuisine where you're from. <laughs> so you were born in India. When did you move to the States? Uh, when I was five years old. Um, wow. So I had already completed. So in India, they start schooling at about two and a half years of age. And so what? I already been to school for two and a half years when I <laughs> came to the US. And, um, you know, here kindergarten starts at age five. And uh, at that point, I had already learned to read and write and that it's, it's very different, but I was very small. And um, so they recommended that, you know, because of my size, I was such a tiny kid that I, I shouldn't um, skip kindergarten because later in life, it would be really, uh, you know, hard for me being such a, such a petite person. And, you know, in retrospect, I, I think I'm glad because I got to assimilate to society with people, my peers, my age. And, you know, I, of course I was still super petite and I still am. And I never really was ever the size of the kids in my class, but, um, that was, it was a nice year to kind of get to know, English and American culture. And my parents were actually in Tucson, Arizona at the time. Um, my dad worked for IBM and, um, it was a, a year of just learning and assimilating. And of course, you know, all the troubles and trials and tribulations that come with it, but I got through it and it was nice because, um, it gave me a little more edge as I entered schooling, uh, since at my English was more fluent and I learned to kind of speak and act in a way that was more American. Yeah, fair. I could only imagine myself at two and a half years old <laughs> and yourself at two and a half years old and how vastly different our development were 
yeah. I was, uh, yeah, I cannot imagine. Like you probably could uh, do Pythagoras' theorem at the age of four. <laughs> Meanwhile, I'm still discovering how to do that at the age of 30. That's great. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> congratulations to you, sir. No, and also, I, I'm always interested in this. So, in in India, that's obviously the the norm. So, do you think development and this is slightly off topic, but just purely interesting? Do you think development is, uh, you know, like you guys get a head start because of the fact of at that age when you're a sponge? It's kind of a leading question. Yeah, but do you, think you guys get a head start. You know, I think so. I there's a lot of debate on, you know brain development and but I do believe that I do believe that countries like China, like India, that start schooling very early, um, there are some advantages uh, to doing that. I mean, learning to read at a very young age and learning to comp just just simple computation uh, is something that you'll need for the rest of your life. And yeah, so I definitely think that that gives some people an edge. Now there's debate about, you know, when my children who were born in the U S <clears throat> you know, there's some new research that shows that there are some more age appropriate times to learn certain things. And so sure. I kind of followed the new research and didn't push them too much too early because I think that there's also, you know, the studies to back up that starting too early uh, is not necessarily the best thing to do. But I do agree, like, that as a culture, um, Indians and also, like, Asian countries tend to have an edge uh, early on because of this. Yeah, 100%. And this is uh, why... My kids are going to jump into gymnastics super early, so they become the most coordinated little legends running around. Just a little fun fact there. Uh, yeah, really. <laughs> so, like, they have. I mean, the, the, I remember reading something about they recruit children at such a young age and mm. kind of put them on this path, and that's how they do it in India. Like my dad said that you know you have a pretty linear path, and in India you can't really choose your career, people kind of choose it for you based on your aptitude at school, mm -hmm. your personality, you know, what your school decides. It's very competitive to do certain fields and only the top, top creme de la creme get to do it. So it's not like America or even Australia. I'm not sure how that works there, but you know, you really can be anything you want here. Um, anybody can be anything. Um, it, that's not the case in a lot of those countries. So there comes with a trade-off. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, uh, you've turned out amazing. I've turned out all right. So we're just going to continue to see how <laughs> <No>. development goes. <laughs> I, I um, definitely think I found myself later in life because I was following this. So one of the bad things about straight and narrow, right, is that straight and narrow doesn't allow for failure and, um, and veering off path. And I think that what I missed when I was young, because I was an immigrant child, I had a lot to prove and I had to lot, a lot of performance to do. I was afraid to fail all the time. And coming into the wellness world about 10 years ago has been so amazing and freeing, not just because I get to do something I love, but also because I get to veer off path. I get to fail. I get to try things that I'm not going to be good at. And it's okay. Uh, whereas the rest of my life was pretty, you know, on track. Yeah. Well, I think, I think uh, either way, massive applause to you because <laughs> just, I think like, again, just championing you for a second. I think it's really cool to, I, I love hearing development stories personally, just because see different paths and things that come, come to fruition. And I know like personally, going to another country, be it five years old, 30 years old, whenever it is, it's still an adjustment even at that age. So there's a lot, lots of, lots of dissect out of that. And and on that note, so you, did you land in New York city or you, where, where were you exactly when you landed? Yeah. So we landed in New York city. Um, and, but my dad had a brother that lived in Phoenix, Arizona, and That's that was right. the only family that he had at all. Yeah. And so my, uh, you know, dad's brother said, why don't you come here and apply for jobs uh, around here? <laughs> so he got a job in Tucson, Arizona, which is about two hours from Phoenix. And so we moved into this, um, it was like a motel converted into apartment complex because that was all, you know, my literally had zero money. And so we lived in this kind of like one room uh, place for my first like, you know, year uh, living there. And then my dad got a job in New York, uh, pretty much nine or 10 months after being in Tucson. And, you know, everybody said, don't go to New York. It's so crazy. And your lifestyle will be 
insane. The winters will be tough, but the opportunity was there. And at that time, that was the only thing that mattered. So we kind of moved over to New York. We went to uh, Westchester because my dad's job was in White Plains. Oh, yeah. Nice. I don't know if you know where that is. Yeah, it's, and, it's a great um, area. We kind of, we moved to Yonkers and hey. we lived in Yonkers, and that was definitely like a wake up call because that was very <laughs> different um, than what I was expecting. But it was a nice, it was a nice, diverse and um, both culturally and economically uh, diverse uh, neighborhood. Once they made a little bit of money uh, a few years later, when I was eight. Um, they had my brother and we moved into a house in this small little town called Yorktown Heights, New York. It's in Northern Westchester. And that was the biggest wake up call because I got there and I looked like, I was like a sore thumb. My grandmother would drop us to school because both my parents worked, you know, so she had the sari and this like, you know, bin, like dot on her head. And, you know, everyone <laughs> in my school was like white and Christian. And it was like, literally look, they looked at me like I was a specimen. They asked me if I was the only kind of Indian they had ever heard of was Native American and in their schooling. So they, they just assumed that I was Native American. And uh, so that was a real wake up call. I had never been in a place where everyone seemed to be on the same team. And I was kind of like the outsider. uh, And it was very obvious to me at that they did not think of me as someone um, that they could relate to. So that was a big learning experience. And I think, uh, you know, really for, from that point onwards, I kind of shunned my background. I've shunned Ayurveda. I shunned um, Indian food and language because I really felt like I needed to concentrate on fitting in and being American at that point. And it wasn't until after my nutrition training, after my medical training, that I found um, Eastern medicine again, because <laughs> I read new things about medicine that we were finding in the research, like this whole thing about turmeric, um, turmeric with black pepper and oil being activators of each other. And you could have, you know, a hundred times more powerful um, effects of anti-inflammatory effects with curcumin, if you add black pepper and oil, and the Ayurvedic sages knew that a thousand years ago. I mean, the the, the powers of chai, you know, the tea, like the chai concoction, the Ayurvedic sages knew that it was healing and that it could help the gut. And I'm learning now that that's absolutely true. Well, it's 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 extraordinary, like how that's kind of takes shape in it, because like this is something that your family descendancy has been doing for years and it, uh, this is why I see all the time and we all hear it. It's like we're not inventing anything with a lot of this information that's coming our way. It's we're actually going back to our original source. As you said earlier, like without the unrefined goodness, curcumin, like turmeric, you know, black pepper, all these things that we have had access to for many years. And I, this is honestly the spices in India are some of the best things. Like you can, you can get whacked in the face through like going through a market of spices and it just changes your happiness mood straight away, which is why I was going to ask you. Like I remember when my friends, um, my Indian friends from school, they'd like open up their lunch boxes and I'd be like, oh my, what is that? <laughs> and they like, I can understand because it is that what happened to you? Would you get? Yeah. I mean, I literally closed my lunch box back up. I didn't eat my lunch. And the next day I said, I need a peanut butter and jelly sandwich on white bread <laughs> um, with Doritos because that's what my friends bring. And it's too embarrassing to bring wow. all this stuff. So my grandmother, who was like, you know, living with us was like learning how to make these peanut butter jelly sandwiches with, uh, with just chips and um, cookies, uh, Chips Ahoy cookies, which was very popular at the time and Doritos, which were all also very popular. It was so important to me. And my classmates that I don't stand out, you know, I or they already made fun of me because I was vegetarian sure. and different, and I didn't want any other ammo for them um, to make fun of me. Yeah, but who knew at that age you were still getting a complete protein, even though being plant based by having a peanut butter and uh, jam sandwich? Yes, that's amazing. <laughs> yes, exactly. Who knew? Who knew? Uh, amazing. And so, at that point in time, we we. Like I want to get the passion from the food and obviously all of that to go in the direction of your studies. Now you've you're double board certified MD at some pretty amazing uh, establishments. Which are which ones are? Which ones are they? 
uh, I went to Cornell for nutrition school. Then um, I went to Albert Einstein Medical School in the Bronx, New York. And then I went to um, uh, the Harvard Hospital. It's Beth Israel Hospital, which is part of the Harvard uh, Hospital System in Boston, the Longwood area of Boston. And then I went to fellowship at Columbia um, uh, Hospital. So Columbia Presbyterian Hospital, you're probably familiar with it. It's kind of like up north uh, in the, um, you know, 168th or 169th. Um, so really hot, like North Manhattan. Mm. Um, and then uh, we were finishing up our training. I was doing a research year. And then uh, my husband, who I had met in medical school, was also finishing up. And we had this opportunity where we both had to get a job. And we both had job opportunities right in the universities that we were at. Uh, but we wanted to try something different. And part of me wanted to do that because I really was shunned for my interests in nutrition, in hormones, in how the body is affected by the foods we eat. Because at that time, it was not in vogue in medicine. It was very much a non-medical field. And what they basically thought was, you know, my my research coordinator, she said, uh, she, my advisor, she said, okay, that's fine. You're interested in this, but what is the basic science? Maybe bring, bring it back to medicine. You know, how can you, how can you make this more medical? And so basically I, I went into um, the blood of humans and looked at the cells like eosinophils and how they reacted um, to certain hormones and foods. And that was my way of kind of blending the two, but I felt the pressure. I felt like I couldn't really pursue what I wanted to pursue because that was not academic enough. And so I was looking for an out as well. So let's, let's, I want to double click on that. So you were looking, take, take me through it again. Let's, let's, let's yeah. break this down. That's, that's actually really interesting to me. This is the best thing about a podcast that you're, you're like the host of. You can kind of take it in the direction you want. And I'm really interested in what you just said. Yeah. So what happened is after medical school, I had done a whole summer in Eastern um, medicine. So I had done acupuncture and Ayurveda. And when I was interviewing for my training position, so after medical school, you have to go through a training uh, process, which is called residency, where you're like a junior doctor and you work with a hospital system. And I happened to interview at Harvard with Deepak Chopra's brother, who um, was also, you know, really in tune with um, learning about Eastern uh, mm. medicine and how food and the environment and people affect your body. And I was lucky because he said, you know what, this is very rare to find people these days in academic institutions talking about this. And so he let me in or he recommended that I go there. But once I got to the Harvard hospital system, they were very like, I would say critical of any thought process outside of the Western. So the way it worked was, and it's still like this, obviously, but it's changing a little bit. Um, if there, if if it wasn't in the evidence-based medicine protocol, um, then it was it was not real. It was um, something that they called like you know the quacks of medicine, the people who were um, spreading misinformation and you know using essential oils to cure cancer, and they, they couldn't differentiate between very wildly crazy alternative medicine and um, medicine that was alternative, but also, you know, healing and mainstream. So I had a lot of trouble there. And when I went to Columbia uh, for my fellowship, I I said, which is after, you know, three years of internal medicine, I said, I really want to concentrate on how hormones and the food um, affects the body. And she said to me, as long as you can bring it into a more medical um, platform, I'm fine with whatever interests you. And so that's why I ended up going there. Uh, But I knew, you know, through this whole process, I kind of knew I was an outlier. I knew that I wasn't interested in some of the same exact things that a lot of my colleagues were interested in. I was more interested in how food, culture, our lifestyle, exercise, sleep, uh, circadian rhythm, sun, you know, all of that affects our immune system and our gut health. And so I knew that what I was interested in was not uh, the path that anybody wanted me to go on. And so when I graduated both fellowship and residency, 
I had an opportunity to just start up on my own and do my own practice. And I thought, wow, this is my opportunity to maybe do something a little bit different in medicine. Little did I know that my <laughs> first day in private practice, I arrived and um, I had just moved all the way across the country. I had two little kids. One was six months old and I got there first day and they said, hey, um, we have an entire panel of patients here waiting for you. And they're all here for um, medical treatment of allergies and um, immune system disorders. And so that was, so I said, oh, I thought that I was going to kind of create my own little clinic and I was going to do what I want to do. But instead, I was kind of expected to follow the Western medicine paradigm. And, you know, in the beginning, I loved it. I loved seeing patients. I loved helping them and treating them. But I felt like there was something missing that I wasn't able to talk to them about nutrition or gut health or immune health or all the things that I was always so interested in. Um, so lo and behold, um, I was burned out. I was searching for kind of a way to figure out how to change my practice, how to change my career, how to incorporate my interests. And I heard a podcast. Um, it was a Rich Roll podcast, which I know I'm sure that back then that was like he was uh, doing a podcast about an interview with Jason Walkup of Mind Body Green. Mm. And Jason said, "Oh," and the way he introduced him, he said, "If anybody knows anything about wellness and nutrition, you must know Mind Body Green and Jason Walkup." And I said. Oh, I don't know about mind, body, green, and Jason. <laughs> and um, and Jason at the end of the podcast, uh, uh, when they were exiting, um, Rich said, "Well, you're taking submissions, right, uh, Jason? Still?" And he said, "Oh yeah, you know, you can just submit at mindbodygreen.com." And so I went to work that day, and in between patients, I thought, "Well, maybe I can like start writing things, and maybe you know, I'd never written." anything before, but I thought, you know, this would be a cool idea. So I went on their website. I saw the articles that they had and I created a, an article of my own and I sent it. And lo and behold, three days later, I got a, a, an email back and she said, the editor said, Oh, that's, this is a cool, you know, blog post. We'd love to publish it. And I, it just lit, like lit me up from inside. I was like, Oh my God, I have, maybe this is an opportunity for me to channel my interests, my expertise, and um, maybe I can help people in this way. And so I started writing for them and I started writing more and a few articles a week. And then I would do like every moment I had free in between patients, I would be writing. And that's literally how my wellness career started because that kind of, you know, I was burned out. I was a tired mom. I had my own issues that I was trying to fix. And when I was while I was learning how to fix myself, I felt like I could share that with people because of my unique training and background. And so that's yeah. how I uh, kind of got here. <laughs> that's kind of got here. I love it. I love it. Isn't it? It's funny when those things happen. I love the amount of times I've heard people's new job or career opportunity opened up from Rich Roll is uh, just amazing. So he's, yeah, absolutely. We just wow. recorded with him. He's a legend. Um, but yeah, so that's, that's so cool to hear. Uh, Mind Body Grain is 100% something everyone should definitely be subscribed to as a newsletter. It's great. Uh, also, at this point, make sure you actually are going to Dr. Amy Shah's website. If you didn't know, it is what, Dr. Amy? Oh, it's amymdwellness.com. So A-M-Y-M-D, the letters, and then wellness.com. Uh, so it's where kind of I have, that's like my hub for all these things. And the way amymdwellness.com started was um, the Mind Body Green team about a year into it said to me, hey, Dr. Amy, uh, do you have a website? Because you know a lot of people who are reading your blog posts want to know where how to get in touch with you. And, <laughs> and I said, no, uh, I didn't, you know, I didn't know. <laughs> what a website was. And so, um, I looked it up online and there was like some YouTube tutorial about how to, how to create a website in two minutes. And, um, I literally created a website in two minutes and that was how, <laughs> that's how I got started. So it's cool because that's, it was literally like wellness was flourishing, starting to flourish at the same time that I was kind of finding my way. Mm. And, um, it's really cool to look back because I was slow and I made a lot of mistakes and yeah. I definitely didn't shoot to the top or anything like that. There was no overnight success. 
Um, but it was like this, you know, constant just staying at it and learning and growing and making mistakes and moving forward. Absolutely. Just grinding away with the content, the blog posts, the writing, everything being responsive as best as you can. So that is, uh, that, that's kind of like the initiation, if you will. But there's a, there's a particular area of topic that I know the team love. Obviously, your Instagram handle, The Fasting MD, says a lot about big yeah. areas of discussion that you love to go into. Uh, and as we allude to in, in, in the opening, obviously, we know the benefits associated with fasting. We've talked about this a number of times on this platform. We have, obviously, uh, blood sugar. We talked about even the hormone response, the, the simple one of you know, weight loss, obesity reduction. There's other ones though around like circadian rhythm, which obviously has an effect on gut health and all the way that we able to do certain things like that. But the biggest one I always talk about is autophagy and it's kind of all interrelated. Yeah. But do you have a particular favorite area of fasting that is just yeah. so fascinating to you? Yes. So my favorite area of fasting is called circadian fasting. And the reason it's a fancy term, but literally means not eating overnight. And that sounds so simple and so, you know, basic, but we don't do it. Um, most Westerners, especially Americans, eat up to, uh, you know, 16 hours a day. And so literally they're maybe taking a break for seven to eight hours while they're sleeping because they're eating something right before bed or drinking wine or having their last dessert and then rolling out of bed and eating first thing. And what we find is that the gut needs sleep and rest and repair time, just like our brain does. Now, it's not like it's sleeping during the night, but what it needs to concentrate on is repair and renewal. Just like our brain's not really sleeping, it's actually concentrating on memory consolidation. There's so many things that are happening overnight. The gut, likewise, needs time to reset, renew. In fact, our body sends signals to our digestive system, to our pancreas, to say, hey, it's nighttime, time to turn off the digestion and time to focus on repair. And so what happens if you try to eat a huge load of food at midnight is that you're eating it with basically lower amounts of insulin production, lower amounts of digestive enzyme. And so that's why people get um, you know, acid reflux and indigestion at night. That's why their blood sugar rises like so much higher than um, if they were eating during the day. And so what I found so interesting is like evolutionarily, we were programmed to pretty much stop eating and stop looking at light, you know, around shortly after sundown. And for thousands of years, we were programmed to shortly after sundown, start to wind down, not have too much bright light, or there was no access to bright light, you know, and no access to huge amounts of foods. Um, you would maybe have a little, little thing, um, but you wouldn't be having the biggest, hugest hot meal late in, in the evening, right before bed. And then when you wake up in the morning, evolutionarily, you didn't just roll over and have a granola bar and a banana. Like, I mean, that was not an option, right? You would wake up, um, you would maybe get your food, maybe you would um, forage or, you know, gather your food, and then you would eat it then. And so there was this nice long break between the time you stopped eating in the evening and the time you st started eating in the day. And when I learned about circadian rhythm science in all aspects of health, I was blown away that we don't even mention this in the, in the modern medical world. Yeah, it's huge. I, uh, you know, like it's so funny how everything's interconnected, but I've had, um, you know, awesome specialists and experts in the world of circadian rhythm on this podcast. I've had gut health experts on this podcast. We've heard, you know, numerous people obviously bring up their, their routine around fasting. And as we're talking right now and discussing this, it's like the idea of how, you know, time restricted feeding, um, can actually enhance your gene expression around circadian rhythm. And that that's amazing to me. So, you know, the idea that, you're actually enhancing your your metabolic ways. You're improving the richness of your microbiota, and ultimately, you're providing your body with the best platform to perform just through these methodologies. Now, you're talking about just to be clear, clear when, when you say circadian rhythm feeding, circadian, sorry, circadian 
fasting, circadian fasting. Yeah. So when yeah. when you say that, are you talking about like a a six p.m. to like a six a.m. or or yeah. sorry, six? What are you talking there? I'm talking about time restricted feeding or time restricted eating. Though um, you know, in the literature, it's interchangeably depending on if you're talking about mice or humans. Yes, um, I, yeah, I'm talking about basically overnight um, fasting, short fasting. So that would be a time restricted um, uh, feeding or eating regimen. So you would fast between 12 and 16 hours um, overnight and basically base loosely around your bedtime and the sun sunset. So I, I tell people, rough guide, stop eating two to three hours before bed. And then in the morning, maybe you uh, wake up and do a fasted workout, get some sunlight, get some nature time, do some mindfulness, and then break your fast um, to get that extra metabolic bonus, which is called um, the metabolic switch. So there's, you know, we typically, Dan, I know you know this because you've probably talked to so many experts, but for people who don't know, we primarily use glucose, meaning sugar for fuel. And almost everyone in the modern world always just relies on sugar for fuel. But when we run out of sugar for fuel, even overnight, we start to dip into our sugar stores in our liver. It's called glycogen in the liver. And once you run out of glycogen stores, you start to switch fuel sources. And this metabolic switch to using fatty acids as fuel instead of sugar is a great exercise for our metabolism. It's like lifting weights. There's all these long-term benefits that are turned on um, by doing this exercise to our metabolism. And so what I ask people to try once they've gotten used to doing, you know, even just a simple overnight 12-hour fast is start to extend it a little bit and maybe add a fasted workout in the morning, the end of your fast, because then you have the best chance of using up those final glycogen stores and then tapping into that metabolic switch, which seems to be literally, it seems to be the number one benefit of intermittent fasting in general. So the New England Journal of Medicine article that described fasting, they said, yes, yes, you will take in less calories, but the real promise is this metabolic switch, which turns on all these genes um, that are ben beneficial for longevity and anti-aging and um, good health in the future anti-inflammatory, et cetera. And so this metabolic switch is something that happens only when you've used up all the, um, you know, glucose that you have stored up, uh, in your system. Wonderful. You're talking about the, a lot of the, the Satoon world as well as you're getting into is really exciting yes. there. That's really exciting. Um, okay. So I love that. So we're talking about glucose. We've also kind of touched on as we go from ATP to ADP to AMP and then activates AMP protein kinase, which is that yes. uh, autophagy process and pathway, at that point is where you get those benefits as well. Um, mm -hmm. And so I'm interested to hear like more about the effects of this. Like, what Do you actually know much about what happens when uh, we talk about circadian rhythms specifically? Can you talk about like the effects of how you can potentially improve your circadian rhythm times and eating wise just through fasting? Absolutely. Yeah. Circadian rhythms are pretty much preserved amongst humans. So mm. it makes sense, right? Because um, light and dark cycles run our bodies. 80% of our genes work on a circadian pattern, meaning that they're turned on or turned off based on the inputs that we're getting through light, through food, through temperature, you know, habits, et cetera. And so I just tell people it's so, so important to get natural light in the morning um, to kind of reset that circadian clock. Um, we have a central circadian clock that's located in our brain. Um, and then we have peripheral circadian clocks in every one of our cells. And these get tuned up, um, you know, when you see that morning sun, because I say, oh, there it's morning, time to turn on, you know, attention, focus. So that's why you, you can anecdotally know, and I do too, when you get that morning sun or you go outside and get some nature time and get that natural light in the morning, your whole day, you are more focused, you're more energetic, your mood might be improved as well. And now we know that even 
releases MSH, melanocyte stimulating hormone, which helps with actually appetite control and impulse control. So if you're looking, if you're someone who's struggling with kind of cravings or uh, controlling your appetite um, or your impulses in general, you may want to go and get that morning um, natural light and nature time, especially right now in the you know, Northern hemisphere is summertime. It's a great time to take advantage of that. So you'll see humans are usually leaner in the brighter summer months because of this MSH effect. You're telling me it's not the wonderful tanning effects. Everyone gets those nice little shades. You know, little <laughs> yes, that also nuts. helps you look slimmer. Yeah, but, yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> there's actually a, a metabolic effect as well. And, you know, getting that light, we have actual receptors in our retina that are connected directly to the circadian centers of our brain. So the suprachiasmatic nucleus in our brain has direct connection to the retina because it's looking for that input of light. And when you're inside, when you're in a, um, inside a home with, uh, you know, you can look at the sun through the door or the windows, but ideally you want to get it naturally into your eyes because a lot of the UV light is blocked um, indoor more than you think, um, you know, fivefold. And so you really want to try to get that morning light, even if it's cloudy or overcast, it's still providing you with 10 to 50,000 lux of light. And a sunny day, you'll get about 100,000 lux of light. And indoors, you get about 1,000 lux of light at most. So you're not getting what you need to really, really optimize your circadian rhythm. So that's how I recommend kind of pairing the overnight fasting with that kind of natural light in the morning, even if it's for a few minutes. That's It doesn't need to be, you know, an hour and a half of nature time. Uh, so it looks like 20 minutes of nature time a day is uh, is what's recommended uh, to bring down cortisol and to help with um, brain function. But even less than that is needed to reset the circadian clocks, probably a few minutes a day. Yeah, interesting. Saying that uh, that's an interesting one, 20 minutes of nature time would actually, is it overall cortisol throughout the day? Because obviously part of the start of the day, your hormonal responses are to increase your cortisol to activate everything. I'm assuming you're talking about across the day, just reduce. That's why nature is so good, right? (laughs) Yeah, nature is, you know, we have so many brain pathways that are are receptive to Mm. nature sounds and nature sights. And so we are kind of leaving that on the table when we don't recommend this. I mean, 20 minutes a day is something that most of us could carve out. Um, for me, it was so eye-opening because I was living in this sunny place at that point, but I never spent any time outside unless, mm. you know, it just happened to be um, a time. And I loved to be outdoors. It was just, I was busy and I was had young kids. And so only when I was spending time with my kids would I spend time outside. But now I intentionally create um, systems that allow me to have 20 minutes of direct light or nature time in a day. And usually that means all at once in the morning, or it means just a few minutes in the morning if I'm running off to a clinic or uh, an interview or whatever it may be. And then uh, a few minutes throughout the day to kind of end up being at least 20 minutes. I aim for 45 minutes a day. Yeah, it's interesting. If I look back to my time as an adolescent, and this is only a very brief period, but when, you know, PlayStation consoles first came out uh, <laughs> and my mom used to tell me, Dan, Brendan, Andrew, go outside. And if only I listened to her for that <laughs> six month period, I would have had so much more beneficial metabolic pathways. Uh, but yes, I, I, unfortunately for me, I did not. But now I do where Milena, my partner will wake up and see me staring at a window with my arms spread sometimes just chilling. Um, so it's, if anyone ever sees their partner doing that, just, just say, I get it. You've been listening to the Epic table. That's totally Yeah, fine. I love that. I know. I, I always tell people, so I have this free 60 day program that anybody can download. It's like a daily, like a little tidbit every day. Mm. And people will tell me, and I say that you're going to look really weird to the general <laughs> population because you're going to be walking outside 
Um, you know, at random times, you might be taking a meeting outdoors instead of being inside. Um, you know, right now we're talking and I'm basically facing all the doors because I know that I want and I have all this natural light coming in because I now know that there's so many health benefits that I kind of tailor my life around it. Yeah. Um, funny story, Dan, was when I came out with my book, I'm So Effing Tired, that was in March of this year. And I dry, dry know, nine, by the way. Yeah, thanks, so. thanks. So I, you know, jam packed my day with all kinds of media and interviews and all these things that, you know, you do when you launch a book. Mm -hmm. And um, I was starting to feel really tired and burned out. And so I thought, okay, my own techniques I was going to use on myself. So what I did is Every moment I got, I would step outside. I would go out the front door and I would um, walk around. I would be on the phone. I'd be, I would take my headphones or I would just walk around. And my neighbors started to notice and they, they said, oh, you know, hey, Dr. Shaw, why are you always just walking around uh, the neighborhood at all random times of the day? And they literally thought there was like something weird going on. And I, and I, I was thinking to myself, yeah, that must look weird because there was a very, there's like a, a shaded area that I would always cross paths and it was in front of the same house every time and multiple times a day I was doing that. And so they thought something was wrong and something was happening and they needed to intervene. And I was like, nope, I'm just trying to get my, you know, nature time in and between <laughs> calls and email. It was like, you know, it looks weird. It looks funny, but you, and that's what you will look like when you're trying to do these things. Just act real normal, embrace it, own yeah. it. And it's yeah. all good. It's all that's good. What's what? the best about living in New York. Like I felt like there's nothing weird you would there's so many weirder things than what you're doing at all times that it's all good you know yeah you a hundred percent i'm a weird person first and foremost secondly in new york city you get to see a whole different side of the world in general but uh Love it. we don't need to be specific we can just kind of let everyone's imaginations run wild on that one yeah um, sure. unbelievable you ticked up some really cool cool notes here interested to know like just i think uh we're going to switch gears a little bit here and talk a bit more specifically about performance. I have my recommendations to athletes and high performers in general when it comes to this, but what's your recommendation to people eating around um, like, you know, pretty intense training weeks. Uh, yeah. And when I say intense training weeks, we got say you, you're training three to four times a week, pretty heavily. You may not be training for something specifically for a goal, but you, and, and at that point can be a tough one because you don't know how to measure your intermittent fasting beneficial um, you know, I guess output. And I think yeah. people who are in a you know, situation where you're constantly measuring yourself against your performance, you may be able to you know, use food if you, you know, fueled yourself correctly. So um, yeah, yeah. yeah. What's, what are your thoughts there? Yes. Um, so for training athletes, so we know that the fastest marathon runners, the Kenyans have known for many, many years that fasted runs are so good for their training. And the reason why is that they're dipping into that metabolic switch zone. They're going from using glucose as fuel to using fatty acids, because, you know, if you're doing a long run or doing a long exercise, there is going to be a point where you're going to be switching uh, fuel sources. And it's like a muscle. You have to get, you know, your metabolism better at going from sugar to fatty acids to back to sugar. And, you know, uh, that's why I think that fasted training can be really beneficial for some people, especially if you're trying to get that metabolic muscle um, stronger. And, but then when it comes to long fast and training, I definitely think that remember that fasting is a hormetic stressor. Hormetic stressor means you give your body a shock, like a stress on your hormones to get some long-term beneficial downstream effects. Now, exercise is also a hormetic stressor. So if you're exercising really hard, um, you are stressing out your hormones, but it's a good thing because in, in turn, you will get all these long-term beneficial effects. However, if you're combining fasting and then you're doing hard exercise, and then say you're working a very stressful job and you're already giving your body a hormetic stressor in that way, and maybe you decide that you're going to skimp on sleep to do all of that, and that's a hormetic stressor. And so what I find, the biggest thing I find is that People are combining too many hormetic stressors. So dieting, for example, extreme diets are a hormetic stressor. So if you decide to go 
um, 100% keto or paleo or whatever it is, and a very stressful, restrictive diet, for example, that is also a hormetic stressor. And when you combine all the hormetic stressors together, it's likely for so many people, it becomes too much and you don't see the downstream beneficial effects. And that was me. I decided that, you know, because I had a love for running, that I would, you know, run early in the morning and intense uh, lengths. And then I would um, fast through that. And then I would be skimping on sleep at night because I wanted to be a better doctor and mom. And I, and, you know, we, we honor, we give a badge of honor to, you know, not sleeping enough and uh, overworking. So I was working late into the evenings, not getting proper sleep. I had a very stressful life, you know, having two little kids and my crazy um, job. And I just was overdoing it. So I was counter basically stressing my body so much that I was seeing the negative side effects of doing a whole bunch of hormetic stressors all at once. And people may relate to this. They may feel, this is what I was feeling. My, I was feeling intense fatigue, especially it, later in the afternoon. I was feeling intense cravings. For example, I couldn't keep my diet very healthy. I was feeling like I needed to eat, uh, you know, salty and sweet all the time. And then I noticed my sleep um, was very disturbed. Even though I was sleeping so little, I had trouble winding down to even go to sleep. I was like tired, but wired. Um, and then I saw changes in my hormones. For example, I had skipped periods for a few months and then I had very, very strong PMS symptoms. And then the fifth thing is I had bad bloating and GI symptoms. And I couldn't figure out what was happening because I thought I was, you know, doing everything right. Um, and I wasn't seeing the benefits of all the hard work that I was putting into my body. And it wasn't until I really got deep into the research and training and understanding the whole body systems that I was just doing too much all at once. And I think when we talk about really, really, you know, strong training schedules, you uh, uh, often in our world that's paired with, you know, a lot of other things and there's not enough recovery and repair time in between. hundred percent. I love how you touched on the multiple facets of stress throughout the day. Uh, obviously, yeah, hormetic stress, the fact that people try to, just in general, take fasting aside for a second. And this is a huge one. It's like if you are trying to achieve your goal, whether it be weight loss, put weight on, body comp, just perform better, have more energy. If you've got a stressful work, stressful at home, stressful and you're putting stress in your body at the gym, you're not going to get those benefits because you're ultimately not allowing your body to be in that state of recovery. And now you add in this point. This is why I still have not found to date. And I'd love if someone could find me this study that actually does show imminent fasting improves and benefits performance. It doesn't say detriments, but I haven't found one that um, and maybe maybe Dr. Amy has, but it doesn't show any demonstration of significantly improving performance, but it's kind of then a, a subjective feel for the athlete or the individual. Some people just feel from a placebo that they yeah. feel that fasting just better for them, which is a, a huge thing that I always talk about when it comes to choosing your own path. But yes, obviously anytime you're changing your diet or having a pretty specific way of eating, it can be an instinctive way that your body is being adapted to a change. And that change can put, cause a lot of stress. So as just reiterating what Dr. Amy said, if you were to you know, add all these different layers to your life that are stressful, ultimately the goals you are trying to achieve with the body under such multiple facets of stress are going to probably more than likely um, go in the opposite direction. So just be aware of that. In conclusion to that, um, personally, I always just tell people it's subjective. If you, if you are training consistently, as, as Dr. Amy said, like if this is a specific event, think about it. If it's part of your usual tra training regime and that's what works for you, sweet, but don't go changing it, especially, you know, month out, um, unless it really changes it for you. Obviously pick it. That's why we, so Dr. Amy, we, we, um, the Apple Temple community, Every Monday to Friday, the first Monday to Friday of the month, we do an intermittent fasting effort together. So that, that oh, awesome. Yeah, it's great. And, and I've got a lot of people who've hit me up and said, Dan, I've actually just continued on. That's awesome. I love that. So if you feel part of what, if you, you know, uh, follow the information we provide, you want to continue on, totally up to you. But what we do find is that uh, specifically like me personally, I can't fast every single day for a month. Like ongoing, yeah. it just doesn't work for me. <laughs> 
but I know it. Trust me, you don't want to be around me when that's happening. <laughs> yeah. yeah, same. But you know, uh, I think uh, so. Going back to your exercise uh, point, there, um, and I'd have to dig it up for you. There is, um, you're right. I think it's more you. It's not that intermittent fasting necessarily improves performance. It's more that it can be, um, it won't be as detrimental as you thought. And yeah. But I do think that in burst training, that's the one caveat. I do think that if um, when they look at people who are doing really powerful burst training, um, that there is a detriment by, you know, being fasted because you really, when you're doing bursts, um, you really are using that sugar, that that stored um, glycogen and uh, blood sugar. And so there is some benefit of having that around if you're really, really trying to perform uh, in short bursts. Uh, but with typical activity and longer exercises, it doesn't seem to be detrimental. Uh, so that's definitely um, something that people can keep in mind. Um, when they're trying to figure out their schedule, the biggest thing I find people, athletes, um, not athletes, but just like, you know, like regular people who are athletes or trying to be athletes like me, um, is that we do too much. We train too much. We fast too much. We, we eat too little, you know, like there's not enough rest and recovery. And if you look at these high level Olympic athletes, like right now we're looking, I mean, so much of their training is around recovery yeah. and rest and proper nutrition and sleep. And in real life, we always forget that. Absolutely. Recovery is the biggest differentiator. I will 120% get behind that. I've seen it firsthand. Uh, so without a doubt, that is huge. What I would, uh, I'm getting to switch gears here. Now you talked about cycles. You talked about hormetic effects. Let's talk about women and fasting. I know this is a huge contentious topic yes. that I've seen a lot. So, Dr. Amy, do you want to share your thoughts on this? Oh, my God. Don't get me started. So, <laughs> I, you I know, will. <laughs> Actually, we'll get I'm you started. Very, I'm a very even and emotionally controlled person. And I, I, I say that because, um, you know, it takes a lot of work on the wellness mindset aside to be even and um, unemotional to, uh, with the waves and storms of life. Um, but one thing that really bothers me is all this misinformation on the internet and it's people who are trying to get attention and trying to, um, throw out shocking things, um, to garner attention and nobody's out there policing. And I don't want to have the job of policing people. Like, I don't think it's my role and, um, but there's just so much misinformation around women and hormones and fasting and all of that stuff. And so just to very, very simply, to state it very simply, is that there is no reason that a woman cannot intermittent fast. It's like saying a woman should not exercise because at extreme forms of exercise, a woman can you know, hurt herself. It's like ridiculous, right? Like you would never say that. You would never say, oh, forget it. Just don't exercise because, you know, you could overexercise and then your cycles will be off. Um, and that's exactly what certain people on the internet are saying. They're, they're kind of garnering attention by this one, there's one rat study that they cite, um, which shows that a rat that fasted or a group of rats that fasted 24 hours um, every other day for three months, um, turned off their uh, reproductive cycles. And if you think about that, uh, rats metabolisms are like three times, three and a half times ours. So that's like fasting for three days, right? And for three months straight um, on a regular basis. And um, then seeing what that does to fertility or hormone cycles. And so it's ridiculous because Yes, overtraining in the exercise realm or overfasting in the fasting realm um, or overstressing um, turns on this evolutionary pathway, which is uh, basically that the GnRH, the gonadotropin releasing hormone in our brain, is the pinnacle, the start of our hormonal pathway, and it's pulsatile. And when it senses extreme stress, like war or famine or uh, personal stress, 
it stops that pulse. It kind of turns off that whole hormonal cascade. And so women will feel um, tired and, uh, you know, have hormonal symptoms, but they'll also lose their periods and fertility. Um, you know, and we think it's probably built in women to protect ourselves from getting pregnant in times of famine and war. Mm -hmm. And it makes sense, right? You don't want to get pregnant in times of extreme stress. Um, so that pathway is what you don't want to turn, you don't want to, you know, stop that GNRH pulse if, if at all possible. And women athletes deal with this all the time because when they're overtraining, their GNRH pulse will stop. And um, same thing with overfasting. So what is overfasting for me is, uh, you know, different from what is overfasting for someone else. So I also women, if you are concerned or you've had troubles in the past, like I did uh, with intermittent fasting, start really slow, like really slow. Start with a 12 hour overnight fast and get used to that. Because if you live in this modern world, you're probably eating 15, 16 hours a day. And even 12 hours is going to be nice um, exercise for your metabolism um, and your mindset. And then from there, you can move up slowly, just like you would any other training program. Wonderful. I'm also shocked that someone got away with talking about such a beautiful thing in life as the, the female productive um, you know, pathway and relating it to rats. I just, uh, you know, I'm championing that wonderful thing that you lovely ladies do. I just don't know who got away with that for a second. Um, very interesting though. I love, I love the way you summated that. Not going to lie in the introduction to this episode, the way that you said that statement is probably going to make the cut. Not going to lie. It's pretty, pretty awesome. Um, but I love how you also brought up overfasting as well. Cause you know, that, again, that's pretty subjective, but yes, there are obviously, as you noted, some points that um, it can becoming a bit of a disadvantage. Um, wonderful. Now I want to quickly champion your book, um, which has got one of the best titles of 2021. <laughs> Do you want to note that? Which book was the book's name again? I'm so effing tired. So it's E-F-F-I-N-G for all the people who are reading it in front of their children. That's great. It's wonderful. And it's uh, obviously, again, tonight, it's what we talked about earlier, how the importance of this area of fasting has, it's not only just fasting, but areas of life, how to you know really beat that. That Particularly, like I think people understanding fasting is this weight loss thing, and it just gives you more energy, all right? It gives you more energy. Simply put, eating more plants, uh, is one way fasting is demonstrated to be another. Um, but just obviously in that relaxed, balanced lifestyle is also, which is not actually ideal for everyone and realistic at all the time. But uh, what what is your favorite chapter from the book, Dr. Amy? Oh, gosh. It must, I, I think it's my introduction because I talk about um, this car accident that I had that literally and figuratively woke me up to, and I think people can relate. We are all running at, hundred miles an hour in our brain. We have a million things to do. We have a to-do list and we're almost going through the motions of the day. And a lot of us, uh, me included, we're, are not taking breaks to kind of look at our life from the outside mm. and seeing how we can edit this and, and, and change directions or um, you know, edit the people, the things that we do every day. And so what I was doing is I was going through life in a haze. I would wake up uh, sleep deprived and chug a ton of caffeine um, to get that burst of what I thought was free energy, which it's not, but burst of energy to get through the morning. And then I would be exhausted by afternoon and evening. And then the evening I'd come home and I would just have so many things to do for the children, for my work. And I knew I was tired and I knew I wasn't doing the things that were optimal for my body or my life. Um, but I had no time to stop uh, or I, I thought I had no time. And I thought that it was a waste of time to pause and reflect or, you know, all that stuff. And so the introduction just basically talks about how I had my wake up call. And I hope that, you know, others don't have to go through this horrifying experience of having a life threatening car accident. But for me, it was my wake up call. It was for that week after the car accident, I couldn't do anything. I couldn't go to work. I couldn't help with my kids. And I had some time to really just reflect on my life. And I realized, wow, I'm not eating the way I want to. I'm not exercising the way I want to. My mindset is not the way I want. My mood, I'm so irritable because of all of the factors that 
you know, not eating well, not sleeping well, not taking care of my mind or body, I was irritable. And I was having nightmares about um, the things I thought I forgot to do and dangers and um, having anxiety. And that made me just realize, okay, I need to edit. I need to edit the people, the food, uh, the habits. And I hope that by reading that chapter, somebody out there is spurred to do the same for themselves. Like it doesn't have to be what I do or what Dan does, but it can be what you do and you can try what works for you. I think eating more plants, like you said, Dan, is like paramount. I think having a mindfulness practice is paramount. I think having nature time and uh, choosing the people you want to be around in your life is paramount. Like those things are essential to having a happy and healthy life. Absolutely. This is huge. So if you guys want the book, I'm, it's all on Amazon. <laughs> yeah. be, go check it out. I'm surfing tired. I love that. It's a great title. You can also go to the website and you can definitely download the book as well, which is uh, free. And then you can get all the other wonderful benefits on her site, which is amymdwellness.com. And Amy, I'm like huge. I keep calling you doctor, but I feel like we're friends, but I'd still call you doctor anyway. And if we were. No, call me Amy. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Well, I really appreciate you sharing your wisdom today. Uh, I'm sure people will be following up with plenty of questions and looking forward to getting the responses. I know a couple of questions, particularly around, you know, the female cycle is always going to be a big one along with human performance and eating cycles there too. So uh, thank you for your time today and your wisdom and and just uh, being an all-around awesome inspirational person to have on the Epic Table. Thanks so much for having me, Dan. I can't wait wait to meet you uh, in person if, you know, this crazy thing ever kind of stops. <laughs> you know, I was planning a trip to New York, but who knows now? Well, I'm sure we'll have you down in the kitchen fasted yeah. and then we'll make sure we uh, actually get something to eat for sure. Can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Amy.